friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. Take a look at James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10 at this time. At the count of three, let's all read together aloud, please. One, two, read. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You and bless You for this wonderful time You've given us, O God, that we might once again study Your Word. I pray for myself, O God, that You might give me the wisdom, the clarity of thought, and the boldness to be able to preach Your Word with anointing and with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I pray, O God, that you will minister to your people, open their hearts and open their minds, O God, to receive your word. May there be no hardened heart this morning, O God, but soften the soil of our hearts, O God. And may Jesus be glorified and exalted in this. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now, we are now in part two and the last installment of a short series which we began two weekends ago. And the title of that series, of course, is The Cure for Worldliness and War. So two weekends ago, we started the series on how to deal with worldliness and war. Now, just to refresh your memory... James was not writing this to people outside the church, but rather he was writing this to people within the church. And it's quite interesting that this happened to be an issue that was taking place in the church. There was fighting, there was conflict. In fact, what we find here is that James calls it a war. So there were some people in church who were opposing each other. And he was saying that the reason why this was taking place was because of the worldliness that was found in church. He names two specific attributes of worldliness. He talks about lust and he talks about envy. And he says these were the two things that were causing a lot of conflict in the church. Now we said that there are two antidotes for worldliness and conflict. So We'll review it once again. We talked about antidote number one, which deals with the supernatural, and we find this in verses 7 to 8a. And what did we talk about? Well, we talked about three Ds. First of all, we talked about divine submission. Then we talked about deflecting the devil, and the word that is actually used here is resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And finally, we talked about divine submission. Now, what did we see 
in these studies? Well, we saw in our studies that there is an invisible and supernatural world that actually influences the affairs of men. Outside, when we look at the clouds, when we look at the sky, everything seems to be peaceful. Everything seems to be quiet. In fact, when you ride the plane and you see the clouds surrounding the plane, it feels like you are already in heaven because everything is calm and peaceful there. But you see, that betrays the reality that there is actually an invisible world, a world that influences the affairs of this world a world that influences individuals, a world that even influences the governments of this world. That's why Paul brought this forth in Ephesians chapter 6 when he said, the battle that we are facing is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against principalities in the heavenly places. Now, obviously, what he was referring to were demonic forces that were attacking believers. And if you take a look at the book of Daniel, by the way, I expounded on the book of Daniel chapter 10 in our congregational prayer and fasting. And we were shown a picture there of what happens in the invisible world. We are told there that Daniel had been in fasting. He was fasting for about three weeks. And we are told that God heard this prayer the very first day that he prayed and fasted. And so the explanation is, why didn't God show or manifest the answer straight away during the first day? Well, we are supplied an answer by an angel that appeared before Daniel. Some Bible scholars feel that the angel that appeared before him was the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel said that on the very first day that he fasted and prayed, God already heard his prayer. But here was the problem. For 21 days, he was being withstood by the prince of Persia. Now the question is, are we talking about an earthly ruler or an earthly prince? Now obviously, an earthly ruler or prince cannot withstand the power of an angel. An angel would be too powerful to withstand. So we're not talking there about a human being. We are talking about an angelic being. In fact, a fallen angel, or what we now know of as a demon. Now, this demon was called the Prince of Persia. And that's quite interesting because somehow that tells you that there is a hierarchy among demons. And quite possibly, this was Satan's general who was influencing the affairs of Persia. He was the one who was trying to withstand the angel Gabriel. Now, angel, the angel Gabriel likewise said that as he was about to return, he was expecting the prince of Greece to meet him. And once again, possibly, this was talking about another demonic force. The, the, the archangel Michael, by the way, was fighting against the prince of Persia. And so, friends, when you take a look at what Scripture tells us, there is an invisible world. 
And this invisible world is trying to influence us. It is trying to influence the church. Perhaps this is the reason why there was a lot of conflict taking place in the church that James was writing to. Perhaps that was the reason why there was quarreling and envying and there was lust for power and lust for, for influence. Perhaps these were the reasons. That's why we have to deal with the supernatural. The bottom line actually of this passage is we need to submit to the rulership of God in our lives. And this is very important. Why? Because we have already accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And therefore, He should be ruling our hearts. What God requires is undivided allegiance before Him. And this is what we signed up for when we accepted Christ. This is what we signed up for when we made Him the King of our lives. And we need to be reminded of that again and again because oftentimes we forget who is the Lord of our lives. And sometimes what happens is we enthrone ourselves once again. When in fact, the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 6 that we have been crucified with Christ. The old self has been crucified with Christ. So in so far as the old self is concerned, we need to consider it dead. And therefore, the one who is supposed to be alive in our hearts is Christ. It is God who is supposed to be alive in our hearts. He is the one who is supposed to be enthroned. And so we yield ourselves to Him. We submit ourselves to Him. That is the way of the Christian life. But at the same time, we also reject the wiles and the schemes of the enemy because he is out there laying some traps before us. He is described in the Scriptures as a roaring lion who seeks someone to devour. And we are told in the Gospel of John chapter 10 that he comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And sometimes unwittingly, without our knowing it or without our being conscious of it, we are actually submitting ourselves to the will and the plans and the schemes of Satan. But friends, if you and I are grounded in God's Word, if you and I seek to obey God and follow what He says, then friends, we will be able to resist the enemy. And so that was antidote number one. But lest we begin blaming the devil for every bad thing that happens to us, we need to be mindful that we need to consider ourselves as well. And this is what we will be talking about. Antidote number two is dealing with yourself. And we find this in verses 8b and all the way up to verse 10. Again, I cannot overstate the importance of this. Because while we need to deal with the supernatural, we cannot try looking for demons in every nook and cranny. We cannot say, well, the devil made me do it, or Satan made me do it. And sometimes we, we do that oftentimes to escape from the blame. And so what we do is do some blame shifting. And friends, if Satan could speak to us, he'd probably say, you keep on blaming me, it's actually your fault. And this is what we want to deal with right now 
And so in antidote number two, I'd like to talk about three C's which you find here on the screen. First of all, we're going to talk about cleansing, personal cleansing, and this is found in verse 8b. And then we're going to talk about contrition, or otherwise known as repentance, as found in verse 9. And then we're going to talk about crucifixion, not literal crucifixion, but humbling ourselves before God, and that is found in verse 10. Now, it's so easy to remember. The first one was all Ds. This time, it's all Cs. So cleansing, contrition, and crucifixion. So try to remember that and make it your takeaway as you leave this place later on. So let's talk about antidote number two, which is dealing with yourself, and let's talk about the first aspect here, and that talks about cleansing. Now let's read verse 8b at this time. Here we go. It says, cleanse your hands. In other translations, it actually goes, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, of course, remember that James was a Jew. And that being the case, fresh in his mind were things that they did as Jews, most especially things that they performed in the Old Testament. So the words wash and purify are actually verbs which refer to the ceremonial cleansing among the Jews. And just to show you a picture just to whet your appetite about uh, Israel. All right, what we have here, well, that's where, where we were. That's called the Shiloh Pool. And in your Bible, sometimes it is called the Pool of Siloam. All right? Now, this used to be a pool. This is the Pool of Siloam. Now, you will notice that there's a lot of dirt already. And there's a line wherein uh, it has not been dug up. Actually, archaeologists were able to dig up this place. But unfortunately, the other side is owned by a religious institution that does not want uh, the archaeologists to do some diggings. And that is rather unfortunate, I feel, because there is so much to learn. If only they could dig up this place, I believe you will find a very long stretch of water or very long stretch of a pool. And this was, this was filled with water during the time of Jesus Christ. And what they did here is they performed the ceremony of washing. And so what they would do is they would go down to the pool they would wash themselves, and after washing themselves, they would now wear white garments. And in this place, actually, you will find a staircase or a stairway on the side. Now, that stairway has also been dug up, all right? And this stairway leads all the way to the temple. So the point here really is that you need to do some ceremonial washing. You wash your whole body so that upon entry in the temple, you would be clean. Now, of course, friends, what James was talking about here was not external cleansing because the only thing that external cleansing will do, the only thing that water will do is wash away the dirt from your body. 
But obviously, this is not what James was talking about. He's using this figure, this image, just to be able to bring home a point. But the point basically is this. We need to wash and cleanse our lives of all evil, of all wickedness, of all impurity. Specifically, based on the context that we were studying, we need to get rid of envy and lust. We need to get rid of all these evil things that are inside our hearts. And this was actually what was producing a lot of conflict. As I mentioned to you, the word lust should be taken uh, in a broader way, and it does not just refer to sexual, you know, sexual thought. It refers to lust for power, for influence, for fame, for success, for money even. These were the things that they were lusting towards. And, and James was saying, you need to drop that. You need to cleanse your hands. You need to wash yourself from all these things. Of course, in application, we can think of other things that would serve as worldly bondages in our case. And we need to get rid of those things. Because if we don't get rid of those things, it will destroy us. It will tear us apart. One time I was talking to Dr. Anthony Ang, and he was sharing to me about the fact that in Talbot Theological Seminary, where he used to study, there was this very great scholar. He was a very uh, great teacher, a teacher extraordinaire. And yet, he had a problem. He had a problem with lust. And one time, he was caught in his own office watching internet pornography. He was a guy who was grounded in God's Word. He was a guy who was a Bible scholar, who knew Hebrew, who knew Greek, who knew systematic theology. But he could not control the lust of his heart. And so when he got caught, he was disciplined. He was, uh, he was disciplined, I believe, for about a year. And so they gave him another chance. And so he came back and he started to teach once again. But unfortunately, he was caught again watching internet pornography. To make a long story short, he was removed from Talbot Theological Seminary. And that is rather unfortunate. Talbot Theological Seminary lost a very great Bible scholar. But you see, that is what happens when we do not cleanse our hands. This is what happens when we do not purify our hearts. I recall the story of one pastor who had been very faithful to the Lord. He was used mightily of God. And yet on the 20th year of his ministry, he fell to adultery. And so the question was asked, what happened? And eventually, he had to make a confession. And the confession was that it did not start actually at that time, but rather it was years of cultivating lustful thoughts. He did not get rid of those lustful thoughts. And so he fertilized it. He nurtured it. And the result of that was failure after 20 long and fruitful years of ministry. And that is unfortunate. 
Because we don't want that happening to us. But that is exactly what happens when we are not careful, when we do not cleanse our lives. And basically, this is the thought as well that we find in the next phrase. It says, purify your hearts. By the way, try to notice that there's a synonym here because it says, purify your hearts, you, what? Double-minded. Sometimes when we think of the heart, we only think of this, all right? But actually, in the Scriptures, the heart and the mind are synonymous. So, what, what James is really trying to say here is not only must we purify our emotions, we must also purify our thought life. And this is exactly what Paul talks about in the book of Philippians chapter 4 when he says we need to let our mind dwell on things that are lovely, things that are pure, things that are noble, things that are excellent. These are the things we need to focus on because what happens is garbage in, garbage out. And so if we allow trash and rubbish to fill our minds, it's only a matter of time before you and I fall or fail before God. That's why when the book of Proverbs says, guard your hearts because it is the wellspring of life, what it also means is we need to guard our thought life. We need to guard our minds from lust, from covetousness. We need to guard our minds from, from envy. We need to guard our minds from, from bitterness and anger. These are the things we need to guard ourselves from. Because again, friends, the devil desires to destroy us. And so we need to purify our hearts. We need to purify our minds. Our hearts must not be focused on the world. Because what God wants is an undivided heart. Again, we go to the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is what God requires of us. Anything less than that is actually sin. So what God is asking is the allegiance of our hearts, the loyalty of our hearts, the faithfulness of our hearts. Yet how many times do we deny the Lord? How many times do we betray the Lord? How many times do we actually become unfaithful to Him in a myriad of ways? That's why, friends, again, allegiance is very important. Our heart sometimes serves to masters, and that cannot happen. Just very recently, my best friend from high school visited Cebu. They, he, went, he went together with his family. I think Brother Bebs met up with him. Um, he was very blessed with Brother Bebs' uh, teaching last Saturday. But anyway, they went back to, to Manila. And he shared to me a little story. See, my best friend owns, or rather their family owns, a 4 billion peso school facility. That's how rich and how wealthy their family is. One time, his sister told him, you are next in line to become president of this school. But his sister warned him and said, but if you are going to be president of the school, let me tell you one thing. The school 
is a very jealous mistress. The school is a very jealous mistress. It will require all of your efforts, all of your energy, all of your wisdom. And so with that warning, my best friend who happens to be a Christian said, can I pray about this first? And so he goes in prayer and he seeks the face of God and he says, Lord, do you want me to become president of this school? Do you want me, Lord, to, to lead this school? Because this, this best friend of mine happens to be a deacon in his church. I'm not sure if he has been recently promoted as, as elder of the church, but he writes blogs and he writes Christian articles. He's very much involved in church. He goes out and shares uh, the Word of God. He sponsors you know, basketball competitions, and in those basketball competitions, he, he shares the gospel. That is how on fire he is. So this was really a crossroad in his life, whether he was going to accept the presidency of the school. And so he said to me that while he was in prayer and while he was reading the Scriptures, the Lord revealed to him in the Bible that God is a jealous God. His sister said, the school is a jealous mistress. God speaks to my friend, and he says, God is a jealous God. And that made it clear in so far as what direction he had to take. And so he declined the offer to become president of that school. Together with that, you know, he got rid of prestige. He got rid of power, influence, maybe even a lot of money. But for him, what really mattered was Christ. Just like the song that we were singing a while ago, Christ was enough for him. And friends, this is a question we need to ask ourselves. When we are given a choice between something that is especially attractive and Christ himself, what would we choose? Or which would we choose? Would we choose the life in Christ or would we choose the, the allurement of this world? Would we choose the pleasures of this world? Remember, Moses was faced with that choice as well. He was raised up as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had all the privileges of a prince. He was educated well. In so far as some history books are concerned, he became a military commander. And so, he had so much promise being the prince of Egypt. But Moses chose to become with his people. His people, the Jews, were actually slaves. He felt that being with them was being loyal to God. And sometimes we're given choices in this world, brothers and sisters. And sometimes we have grand opportunities to enrich ourselves, to make ourselves famous and powerful. But the question is, does God really want that for us? In the end, we need to be able to say, Christ is enough for me. And so, friends, that's the first thing we need to consider. Now, remember this. We can only be useful to God if we have cleansed lives. I may ask you this question. How many of us would like to be used of the Lord? Raise your hands, please. All right. We all want to be used of God. Brother Beb shared a very powerful message last, last Sunday, and he talked about the Great Commission. And that in itself is an opportunity for us to be able to serve God. 
And friends, let me just remind you, unless we have cleansed lives, unless we allow God to purify our hearts, we cannot, we cannot be used of God. But when we allow ourselves to be cleansed, then things will begin to happen. Allow me to use the example of sponges. How many of you know that sponges are actually animals? They are animals that live in the sea, and divers must descend to the ocean floor to gather them. Now, after they are brought to the surface, the process is they must be clean in order to be useful for household purposes. Once all the living matter is removed, the skeleton, so to speak, with its open-celled structure, has an amazing capacity to soak up liquids. So the only time a sponge becomes useful is when it becomes clean. And it is here I'd like to just share to you a bit of something that may be troubling some of your hearts. Maybe some of you are going through trials. I don't know if I'm, I'm speaking correctly right now, but I just sense in my heart that some of you are going through adversity. Some of you are going through trials in your life. In fact, I've heard of a few people whose, whose families uh, are in deep trouble, trouble or problems. One of our pastors, for example, lost his father. Um, he's in Uzamis right now. Actually, he was enrolled with me in our Expositors Academy program, but he called me up and he said, I cannot, I cannot attend the classes. My father is critical. His father was critical at that time. I only learned yesterday that he lost his father. One of our sisters uh, from one of our outreaches also just recently lost her dad. And of all times, her dad is going to be buried on her birthday. And so, I don't know, but my sensing is some of you are going through trials and difficulties, adversities in your life. It might be financial. It might be a physical ailment. It might be something that, that concerns your family. I don't know exactly your situation. Let me tell you this. Whatever you are going through, it is God's sovereign plan to shape and mold you into the kind of person that He wants you to be. Please permit me to say once again that the reason why God saved us and redeemed us is so that we might be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the goal of God for us. And a lot of us fail to see this goal, this price, this reward in our lives. Again, with the song that we sang a while ago, Christ is our reward. He's the direction of our lives. He's the goal of our lives. He's the trophy of our lives. And you see, we can only find fulfillment in our lives when you and I become shaped and molded and conformed into His very image so that when people look at us, they actually see Christ in us. They see Jesus in us. They see love. They see patience. They see goodness. They see kindness. They see faithfulness. They see long-suffering. These are the things that people are supposed to see. And that's why God allows and permits certain circumstances to take place in our lives. He allows trials and adversities to take place. 
because He is shaping and molding our character. There is nothing that happens to us that is an accident. Everything is known before God. In fact, in the Scriptures, if you go to the book of Psalms, we are told by the psalmist that even before one day took place in our lives, everything about us was already written in God's book. So all the blessings, all the trials, all the big and small details, they've all been written in God's book. In so far as time is concerned, we're moving towards time. But in so far as God is concerned, everything is history to Him. Everything has happened to Him to a certain extent. I mean, if we're going to talk about the omniscience of God. So the question is, why does God allow these things? Why does God allow pain and hurts? Why does God allow us to go through difficulties? Again, friends, there's a purpose. If you recall the Gospel of John chapter 15, we find there that the Lord Jesus Christ said to us that He is the vine and we are the branches. Now, some branches bear fruit, but there are other branches that do not bear fruit. So what does the vine dresser do? Well, the, what the vine dresser does is he prunes the vine. I'm sorry, he prunes rather the branches. For what reason? Well, it's a kind of shock treatment. My grandfather was in agriculture. And I would see him sometimes. He, he would literally wound some, some trees. And he explained to me the reason why he was doing that. He was doing that so that the tree would become fruit-bearing. And sometimes that is what God is after. Sometimes we're wounded, so to speak, by the Lord. And it's like a shock treatment. But what it produces in our lives is righteousness. What it produces in our lives is purity. Because when we're pinned to a corner, where do we turn to? We turn to God. When we're desperate, where do we run to? Who becomes our refuge? God becomes our refuge. And it is in those moments that we do experience intimacy with God. It is during those times that we experience sweet communion with Him. And then we realize that God is the be-all and the end-all of our lives. And when that happens, we become satisfied. A.W. Tozer was right when he said the goal of God is not to make us happy, but to make us holy. And some of us are saying probably, well, Pastor Mel, if that's the case, is the goal of God in our lives to make us sad? And my answer to that is no. But here's the thing. If you become holy, you will become happy. But it has to start, first of all, with holiness. Remember what the book of Isaiah says? There is no peace for the wicked. And so if we live in wickedness, if we live in sin, if we linger in, in wicked ways, brothers and sisters, there is no way you and I can be happy. The way to happiness is the way of holiness. But sometimes, as Kevin DeYoung said, there is a hole in our holiness. And we need to fill it up with a lot of the Word of God. We need to fill it up with God Himself. 
And then, friends, we will experience true and lasting satisfaction. We will not find it elsewhere. We will only find it in God. So the first thing, the first thing here with antidote to the self is cleansing. We go to the second, contrition, found in verse 9. Let's take a look at verse 9 at this time. It says, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, the point of this passage is not that we should, we should wear sad or long faces all the time. It's rather unfortunate that in the Middle Ages when they, they started to paint um, uh, images of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles and the saints, they painted them with long faces, with sad faces. And the idea that you get is when you're sad, when you're wearing a long face, then you must be holy. And that is rather unfortunate, brothers and sisters, because the kingdom of God is not described as a kingdom of sadness. In fact, if you go to the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you take a look at Galatians chapter 5 and find out one or, or two of the fruits there, two of the fruits there would be joy and peace. And so again, friends, the Christian life is not supposed to be a life of, of sadness and depression and despondency. So the question is, what does, what does James mean here? When he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. What does he mean here when he says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom? And again, we have to connect this with sin. What James is saying, when you sin, you need to be miserable. When you sin, when you, sin you need to mourn. When you sin against God, you need to weep. When you do acts of wickedness, let your laughter be turned into mourning. When you fail God, your joy has to become gloom. That's what he means. We need to connect it to sinfulness. In other words, the point here is we need to repent. We need to daily confess our sins before God. Because every single day we do sin against God. Maybe not in action, but maybe in our words, maybe in our thoughts, maybe in our intentions, maybe in our motives. And that's the reason why we have to come before God and ask for forgiveness. And we cannot do a general kind of confession because sometimes that's how we do things. We come before God and we say, Lord, I confess my sins before you. If ever I have offended you today, Lord, please forgive me. But is that the proper way to make confession? I don't think so. Because when the Lord chided the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation, because they had lost their first love, this is what Jesus said to the church. He said, remember from where you have fallen. So if we are to really confess genuinely our sins, we've got to remember where we fell. Did you fall in the area of lust? Did you fall in the area of envy? Did you fall in the area of pride? 
Did you say something abusive? Were you unkind? We've got to go to specifics. And we've got to bring it before God and confess them. And it's good to remember those sins. Why? Because as we remember and confess them to the Lord, we are on the way to genuine repentance. Because repentance is defined as a turning away from sin. But how can we turn away from something that we do not remember? Let me say it again. How do you turn away from something that you do not remember? If we do not intentionally remember and confess our sins, if we just do general confessions, it's not going to cut. It's not going to work. The point of this passage is to feel remorse whenever we sin and to confess it in genuine repentance. Every time we commit sin or if we are in sin, we should be conducting a funeral service. A.W. Tozer was right when he said, sometimes our problem is we heal ourselves too easily. Let me share to you something that he wrote in his book, The Root of Righteousness. A.W. Tozer told of a state governor who disguised himself and visited a prison. And while talking with a personable young convict, he felt a strong desire to pardon him because after all, he looked very personable. And so he asked him this question. The governor asked him this question. What would you do if the governor were to offer you a pardon? The convict snarled and he said, the first thing I do is cut the throat of the judge who sent me here. The governor was saddened as he broke off the conversation and he left. And that young man remained in prison. Unfortunately, that is the situation with a lot of us. We are behind the bars of our bondages. We are imprisoned in our sinfulness. And we need to experience freedom. But that freedom that we want will never, ever happen, friends, unless we confess our sins and turn away from them and seek the face of God. If there is no repentance in our lives, God cannot help us. He cannot help us out of our predicaments, which may be the results of our sins. And we need to enter into the habit of condemning sin in us, not condemning ourselves, because that would be counterproductive. Remember, the Bible tells us the adversary, Satan himself, is the accuser of the brethren. And that's what he continually does. He, continu he continually condemns us. He calls us a hip hypocrite. He calls us play actors. That's why at times we find ourselves condemning ourselves. But friends, what we need to do is condemn the sin, not ourselves. Because in so far as God is concerned, we have already achieved positional righteousness. We have already achieved positional perfection before Him. That's why we can pray to Him. That's why we have access to Him. It's not based on our performance. It's not even based on our fasting. 
It is really based on the righteousness of Christ. And that being the case, we must not condemn ourselves, but rather condemn the sin in us. Again, as I mentioned to you, the problem with us is we heal ourselves too quickly. When we take a look at the example of Peter when he denied the Lord, what was his response? When the rooster crowed, what was his response? We are told in the Scriptures that he what? He wept bitterly. And here's a question I have for you. When you fail the Lord, do you weep bitterly? Do you weep because you betrayed Him? Do you weep because you denied Him? Do you weep because you chose the world over Him? Do you still weep, brothers and sisters? And I think it's very important that we still continue to weep before God. Because again, the way in His kingdom is the way of repentance. Now we go to the last. So we saw cleansing, we saw contrition, and now we go to crucifixion, which is found in verse 10. What does verse 10 say? It says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. I think it was Paul Tripp who said, or no, it was Steve Lawson who said, if you do not humble yourself before God, He will humble you. And the reason why He's going to do that is because the Scriptures tell us that He is opposed to the proud. God hates pride because pride enthrones yourself. The one who is supposed to be enthroned is God Himself. There must be no rivals. That's why we need to humble ourselves. And Christ Himself modeled it to us in Philippians chapter 2. Please turn your Bibles there to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and onwards. It says here, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. How? By becoming obedient. What kind of obedience? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, it doesn't get any better than that. The humility of the Lord Jesus Christ was absolute. And we know it is absolute because He was so obedient to the point of death. He did not choose His own comfort. He did not choose His own earthly life. But rather, He chose pain and He chose suffering. He chose death. For what reason? So He could die for all of our sins. That is why the greatest expression of love is in the cross. And if ever you find yourself doubting whether God loves you, all I can simply say to you is, is look at the cross. Look at what Christ has done, and what you will see there is love. 
Because this man was innocent. He was guiltless. He was absolutely holy and pure. He did not deserve to be spat upon. He did not deserve the crown of thorns. He did not deserve those nails on his hand. He did not deserve those nails on his feet. He did not deserve to be whipped and to be beaten. He did not deserve to be bruised. If you still doubt the love of God, look at the cross. And you will see love. And you will see humility. Jesus is the pioneer for us. He is the one who has prepared the way for each and every one of us to follow. He is the ultimate model of our lives. And if Christ, who is God, who is the second person of the blessed Trinity, if God Himself humbled Himself to the point of death, how can we be arrogant and proud? How can we deny God and His will in our lives? How can we choose ourselves over Him, the world over Him, our selfishness over Him? How can we do that? The way that God wants us to walk is the way of humility. And there is a reward for humility. Notice what verse 9 reads. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility pays. This is what humility does. This is what humility looks like. And this is what humility will bring into our lives. It will bring a reward. God will exalt us. So if you want to be exalted by God, if you want to be promoted by God, well, you need to humble yourself. That is the way. Right now, my meditation is in the book of Genesis. To be specific, I'm now reading up again on the life of Joseph the dreamer. I don't know what it is with the life of Joseph, but every time I read it, it always comes fresh to me. I never get tired of the story of Joseph the dreamer. It's always an encouraging story to me. And when we look back at what happened to him at 17 years old, remember he was the favorite son of Jacob because he was the firstborn of Rachel who was really his, who was really the love of his life. Leah was actually somebody whom Laban uh, gave to, to Jacob, but the real love of Jacob's life was Rachel. That's why his son, Joseph, became his favorite, gave him a multicolored tunic. And his brothers began to envy him, and they decided they would kill him. But at the last moment, they decided instead of killing him, why don't we sell him as a slave? And so he becomes a slave. 
but God accompanied him. And as God accompanied him, the, uh, the, the house of Potiphar began to prosper. The problem was, and sometimes this could be a problem, he was handsome. And because he was handsome, Potiphar's wife was attracted to him and wanted to lie with him. You know what? Joseph could, rebel, could have rebelled against God. He could have said, well, Lord, you didn't take care of me. What was my sin, Lord? I was just, I was just being a son. Is it my fault that I was the favorite of my father and now I end up as a slave? He could have rebelled and said, well, why don't I lie with this woman? Anyway, my life, my life is a mess. But no, friends, he never forgot God. And so he said to Potiphar's wife, he has given, your husband has given everything to me except you because you are his wife. How can I sin against God and lie with you? But this woman was persistent. She was a strong-willed woman. And one day, Joseph was alone together with her. And, and, and she grabbed him and asked him to lie with him. But Joseph refused. A portion of his garment was torn, and he was framed up. Potiphar's wife said, that she was raped, or there was an attempted rape by Joseph. So from favorite son, he becomes a slave. And from a slave, he now becomes a prisoner. How long? When he, got, when he became a slave, he was 17 years old. For 13 long years, he was a slave and a prisoner. And how many of us in that kind of a situation would remain faithful to God? How many of us when we go through that kind of an adversity will still say, God, you are still my God? How many of us when we go through pain and difficulty would be like Joseph who did not want to offend God? But friends, all of that was really a preparation. And sometimes, here's the thing, friends. Don't quit. Because sometimes you are just a stone's throw away from the ultimate blessing of God. Sometimes you're just one door away from the blessing. Thank God Joseph was faithful. So that at the age of 30, Pharaoh had a dream which he could not interpret. And Joseph was able to interpret it to him. And who would think that the interpretation of his dream would now cause him to become prime minister of Egypt? And that's exactly what happened to him. The second in command. What a powerful story that is. Amen? What an encouraging story that is, that our God is faithful when He says He will exalt us. He will. Amen? He will. So what do we need to do? We need to humble ourselves. And that requires crucifixion. Because when you humble yourself, you're really dying to yourself. But here's the thing. The crucifixion comes first before the resurrection. 
The crown of thorns comes first before the crown of glory. The hall of shame comes first before the hall of fame. And this is exactly what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. The bottom line in all of these is that if you follow this prescription of humbling yourself in due time, we sing this song, He makes all things beautiful in His time. Amen? He makes all things beautiful in His time. Now, I'd like to end by sharing to you that if you observed closely the passage that we studied you will find 10 commands. Can I show that to you right now on the screen? What are the commands we saw? Submit, that's one. Resist, that's two. Draw near, that's three. Cleanse, that's number four. Purify, that's number five. Be miserable, that's number six. Mourn, that's number seven. Weep, that's number eight. Turn, that's number nine. Humble, that's number ten. If you notice, this passage has ten commands. And by the way, they are in the aorist imperative in the Greek. Now, what exactly does aorist imperative mean? It means this, we obey them immediately. So I know some of you are thinking, well, I agree with everything you're saying. But I think a lot of us are thinking, well, sure, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you, but not now. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year. But no, friends, the aorist imperative says it's now. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's not next month. We have to do this now. Because if we don't do it now, it might be too late and we might end up in a far worse situation. Let me tell you a little story in ending. My father is an American citizen or was an American citizen because he passed away. And so while he was in America, he was suffering with hypertension and so he had to take his daily medication. As you very well know, if you have hypertension, you need your daily dose. The problem was one day he forgot. He forgot to take his medication. And at that time, he was writing a letter to us. And while he was writing that letter to us, he noticed that he began to slip from the chair. He no longer had control of his body so from the chair, he slipped and fell to the floor. He was able, I think, to pop his medication into his mouth. But by that time, it was too late. He lied down there for several hours until my cousin saw him sprawled on the floor, called 911. Thankfully, uh, he, was, he was brought to the hospital, Daniel Freeman um, Hospital. And the sad thing with my father was his, his room was facing a cemetery. And he saw 
people being buried every day. And that somehow created so much depression in his heart, he was probably thinking, I'm going to end up, I'm going to end up six feet below the ground. He had been praying for myself to go, and thankfully I was granted access, a visa, to be able to go and visit him, and I was able to take him home. But my father was never the same. He lost the power in his left arm and his left leg. He was never the same. And eventually, the Lord took him home. I'd like to share that story to you because sometimes we take, we pop the medication too late in the day. And the antidotes have been given to us. We need to deal with the supernatural and we need to deal with ourselves. The medications are in our hands. The question is, what do you do with those medications? If you're wise, you will pop it into your system, and that will help you. And you will have a life that is blessed, a life that is satisfied in God, a life that has peace and joy, a life that God really wants for all of us. Amen? Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the grace that abounds in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you have not forsaken us. We thank you that you are with us and for us and that you are not against us. And Lord, as we study the book of James, your intention is to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we not resist the Holy Spirit, but instead may we yield ourselves to Him. May we not procrastinate, O God, but with the commands that were given to us, may we immediately follow You. And we trust, Lord, that you will provide us the grace and the strength to be able to do that. We thank you, Lord, also for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And Lord, whatever has been achieved today, we give you back all praises and honor in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.